again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro with the Legal Consulting Group. And I'm Carrie Willis. The Bar on Healthcare is available on Google Play, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, and The Bar is open. And we want to welcome you to a special edition of The Bar today with a very special guest. Carrie, uh, can you tell our listeners about our guest? Yes, thanks, J.D. We are so excited to have Congressman Joe Courtney with us today to talk about the Cadillac tax. Congressman Courtney represents the 2nd District of Connecticut in the U.S. House of Representatives. He was elected in 2006 and serves on the Armed Services Committee and the Education and Labor Committee. Before being elected to Congress, Congressman Courtney was a member of the Connecticut Legislature, where he served as chairman of the House Public Health Committee, so he's no stranger to health care issues. Among his other accomplishments in Congress, Congressman Courtney has been leading the charge to repeal the Cadillac tax, which imposes a 40% tax on employer-sponsored health plans that exceed certain coverage thresholds. This has been a huge issue for employer plans as they consider plan designs and how to address this tax. Congressman Courtney, thank you for being here and welcome to the bar. Great. Thank you, Carrie, And uh, thank you, J.D. Uh, Look forward to, you know, talking about an important issue that's still hanging in the Senate, so your your timing is perfect. Great. Well, Congressman, you've been opposed to the Cadillac tax since even before the Affordable Care Act was passed. You've introduced legislation in the last three sessions of Congress to repeal the tax. Why do you think the tax should be repealed, and what have you been hearing from your constituents and others around the country about the impact of this tax on their health care coverage? Sure. So, um, as I think most or all of your listeners know, again, the Affordable Care Act, which was signed into law in March uh, 2010, um, was a sprawling piece of legislation that contained about 440-some-odd different sections. Included in it was this provision on the excise tax on health plans that exceed certain premium or value levels um, that was incorporated through the Senate um, during the later stages of the, you know, all the deliberations that took place surrounding um, this bill. It was not in the House bill when it first emerged uh, in in the fall of 2009. So, um, you know, really the, when that uh, part of the uh, Senate amendments where it was discovered or revealed, um, you know, the alarm bells went off uh, for me and many others because um, if you looked at the way the tax is structured, I mean, it was a very sort of uh, blunt instrument which treated all health plans regardless of region, regardless of the composition of a workforce, uh, you know, regardless of the type of work that an individual uh, performed in that workforce. I mean, all the risk factors um, that if you talk to people who are actuaries and really understand the way that premiums are constructed, um, it was clear that the the impact would be very disparate and in some cases very unfair and generally speaking, um, you know, would have the net effect of degrading um, the quality of people's coverage. Um, You know, the purpose of an excise tax is always to change behavior as much as it is to collect revenue, you know, whether it's on cigarettes or, you know, alcohol, or in this case, you know, it was uh, imposed on high, supposedly high-cost, quote-unquote, Cadillac health plans. There's part of me that actually really resists using that term because I think it's such a misnomer um, because a lot of health plans are are not Cadillacs that still would get swept up 
uh, under this tax. And, and really, in terms of what I was hearing from folks, I mean, that was precisely the point. I mean, the notion that, you know, the, the only health plans that would have been affected uh, by the tax at the thresholds that it was, um, you know, initially um, set at in the, in the Senate and even with some modifications by the White House um, later during the negotiations and the reconciliation process, the fact of the matter is it, it would not be Cadillac drivers. It would be middle class folks, um, you know, whether it's people working in a, in a factory or a school system or a police department or a fire department. And, and again, it would have the net effect of really degrading and um, shifting costs onto patients as opposed to really creating any real efficiencies in the healthcare system, which is the smart way to, to reduce healthcare costs. So again, it came out of the Senate. It would have had a um, startup date of 2013. Um, we pushed back hard. Uh, in the House, I organized and wrote a letter that was signed by about 190 of my colleagues to the White House. Again, these are people who are supporters of the Affordable Care Act saying, you know, don't do this. Uh, we were successful in terms of pushing the effective date back to 2018. Um, again, we've had follow-on bills in, in the past couple of uh, Congresses that pushed back the startup date to 2022. But what I've heard from, you know, folks who are in the business of um, you know, supervising healthcare plans, HR departments, whether you're in union uh, employment situations or non-union employment situations, small businesses, you know, uh, public sector uh, folks. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that you know these delayed um, effective dates are only good to a point. That you know you can't sort of plan uh, the design of health plans in in one-year increments or on the schedule that Congress operates. You've really got to, you know, sort of have a longer view than that, and that's why, um, you know, the the end game, which we've had some success just recently, is really just to strike this provision from the law. I, I, and I want to emphasize that, you know, it is that one section of a section in a bill with 440 sections that um, our efforts have been aimed at, um, because a lot of the architecture of the Affordable Care Act, which you know protects patients from pre-existing condition exclusions and lifetime limits you know, defines benefits in a way that is meaningful for, for people, for patients and families, you know, none of that is affected by uh, striking the uh, excise tax slash Cadillac tax uh, from the law. And, and, and really, you know, that's a, a point that, again, we, we get feedback from folks as well, is that they're looking for a surgical fix here, not some draconian, you know, sweeping uh, change that would, again, uh, undermine, you know, some of the positive aspects of the ACA. Uh, Con Congressman, uh, this is J.D. Pirro. Uh, yep. One thing I want to I want to uh, ask you about is just the the bipartisan nature of, of your bill. When uh, when the House passed this, it, it was not exactly a nail biter. It was 419 <laughs> to six. Uh, so, you know, a, a rarity these days when you get that kind of bipartisan support. And you had you had support from people who are really often on opposite sides of the healthcare debate: employer groups, labor organizations, patient advocacy groups, business groups. Why do you think, in, in your experience, why do you think repeal has such bipartisan support? I and mean, I mean repeal of the Cadillac, repeal of the correct. Cadillac tax. Correct. And and um, so um, the um, this was an amazing, extraordinary coalition. I've been around a few rodeos, you know, in Washington by now, and also when I was in the state house. And um, you know, to see the coalition, which consisted at the end of the day, we did our best to kind of tally all the groups. It was about 670 organizations, and I mean, as you point out, the spectrum, you know, went from 
you know, groups that have been, you know, bitter opponents in, around the healthcare issue over the years, whether it's provider groups, um, you know, labor uh, management, small business, uh, nonprofits, you know, they all sort of came together. And again, we're united by a common um, understanding and theme, which is that, you know, a Cadillac tax is just, it is a blunt instrument and it's going to cause damage in terms of, um, you know, the, the ability of employers, which again is still, you know, the sort of foundation of healthcare coverage in this country. It's roughly about 150 million to even higher, according to some estimates, um, Americans are covered through their work. And that, um, you know, HR directors, people at the collective bargaining table, um, you know, insurance agents, you know, all the folks who, who have to really sit down there with a you know pen and paper and try and calculate uh, ways to keep coverage um, viable for folks, they, they, they basically just were all throwing up their hands and saying, this just doesn't work. So, um, you know, it took a while for us to get critical mass to get a vote in the House. And, um, you know, we've had, we've had actually good bipartisan support in the last two prior Congresses for repeal of the Cadillac tax. Um, and, and in this year, it was no different. Uh, you know, I, my lead uh, Republican co-sponsor, Mike Kelly from Pennsylvania, uh, rounded up a, a really strong number of co-sponsors. It was what it was about 350 uh, by the time the the bill came to the floor. Uh, and again, that is kind of the you know an old-fashioned story about um, democracy, which is that the external pressure, sort of uh, from the grassroots of organizations, that um, you know again just went across the board, finally hit critical mass. We have a new rule in the House called the consensus calendar that any time a bill gets 290 co-sponsors, it has to be voted on. And um, when number 290 uh, signed on to the bill, and that was actually the uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Congressman Richie Neal from Springfield, I mean, that sent a just a powerful message um, that this now had really reached uh, the tipping point in terms of getting uh, a vote. And Speaker Pelosi, you know, um, who I called immediately after we hit that milestone, um, you know, consented saying, yep, we're going we're gonna to bring this on the suspension calendar. And, and that's when we had the vote um, back in July. The, the last sort of, you know, s- sort of cohort of organizations that came onto the bill at the end, which I think was very powerful, was that we started getting patient advocacy groups like the American Cancer Society and Families USA. These are organizations that were absolute diehard staunch supporters of the Affordable Care Act because of, the, again, the, the positive patient protections that were built into the bill. They usually shied away from getting involved in any of the questions of financing the Affordable Care Act. But in the case of the Cadillac tax, I think they, they started to recognize that the the net effect of the Cadillac tax, if you use it as directed, you're going to end up creating barriers for people to get access to health care uh, because of the push to high deductible, high out-of-pocket coverage. And for you know the mission of the Cancer Society, for the mission of Families USA, you know at some point, you know, that financing piece of the bill really intruded on what they're trying to do, which is to protect patients and to make sure that they have access to care. So, um, you know, it was a really quite extraordinary story, um, as you point out, um, about um, an issue that normally is toxic in terms of the way it can divide um, different organizations. In this case, uh, people came together. Yeah, that was and that was that was really great to see. Um, one group, though, is as you know, Congressman, who's been opposed to the repeal of this tax, are uh, economists, 
And yep. several leading economists just recently wrote a letter to Senators McConnell and Schumer asking that the Senate not repeal the tax. And, you know, some of their reasons are that, that the, the, the tax the way it is will help curb overuse of healthcare resources and discourage employers from providing overly generous health care coverage to their employees. How, how do you respond to that argument? So that's you know really been the argument from day one um, in terms of uh, the Cadillac tax when it was first um, you know adopted by the Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus back in, in 2010 and um, you know I, I guess there's a reason why they call it, you know economics the dismal science because again, if, you look at, if, if you look if you look at really the, the you know the the thinking and the rationale that they offer which is that you know, attacks, and then these are the ones who are really, you know, upfront about the way they see it working. Is that it would it would shift costs to to patients and to families, and that it would it would require patients to quote unquote have more skin in the game, um, you know, uh, so that you know they could make choices about uh, more, um, you know, or less utilization of of healthcare. Again, th- there's a number of problems with that, which is that. Um, you know, the way premiums are, are costed out is not uniform across the country. So there are parts of the country where premium costs and value of, of health plans, which is the, really the way the tax is um, applied, you know, is really determined by where you live and, and, you know, whether or not you have an older workforce, because a lot of these are self-insured and, and that's the way, you know, things get costed out. Um, and, uh, you know that has nothing to do with utilization. If you if you go to the American College of Actuaries, who in my opinion you know have a more um, you know powerful voice in terms of you know really analyzing uh, the Cadillac tax, they will tell you that um, richness of health plans, quote unquote, you know really is about fifth or sixth on the depth chart in terms of how plans are priced out. That again, geography, uh, composition of the workforce nature of the occupation, you know, are much bigger drivers of uh, premium setting than, um, you know, the, the the way a plan is designed. And so, you know, I, I think there, there's major questions in terms of just the, um, you know, um, just the utility of this as a, as a tool to control healthcare costs for that reason. And also, I mean, if you look at the way they calculate the, you know, the deficit, um, "Quote unquote benefits of the Cadillac tax. It's really not based on tax collected. Um, it's also based on a theory that there'll be a, a wage um, effect. In other words, that employers will automatically shift um, any lower uh, payments that they make for health premiums into wages and salaries. And again, CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, which has been you know kind of doing updates over the last 10 years, has actually kind of modified." It's, it's analysis on that score to, to acknowledge the fact that they really don't have real models that really demonstrate that there's going to be a dollar-for-dollar trade-off in terms of higher wages and salaries that, you know, some companies may keep it in terms of, you know, their own profits. Um, you know, money may get spent in other ways, you know, in terms of those savings so that, you know, the notion that um, employees and staff are, nece- are going to be uh, beneficiaries um, is really not Again, there's just no modeling that out there really demonstrates that um, in a way that, you know, when you're talking about people's, um, you know, health coverage, in my opinion, you better be darn sure 
before you're going to engage in that kind of policy. And um, so, you know, that, that, that's why I think, you know, the, the, the argument that they make, which, again, has been the refrain over the last 10 years, has really steadily lost, um, you know, its its strength uh, over time. And, and and again, we heard a lot of that when before the on the lead up to the vote uh, that took place in the House, and and I I just don't think by itself that that um, letter that those economists sent is really going to um, you know win the day. It's 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 hopeful that again that coalition is going to come together and really um, work like it did in the House and and get and have the Senate, which by the way now has 61 co-sponsors. So they're over the 60 vote threshold. You know, but if you do the math, that automatically means that it's bipartisan. Um, you know, we really should hopefully be able to to just you know move quickly to to get this cloud in the statutory overhang that still exists with the Cadillac tax cleared out of the way with full repeal. Yeah. So so you mentioned the Senate and now the balls in the Senate's court. What do you think that the likelihood is that the Senate actually takes up the bill, passes it, and it gets signed into law? So immediately after passage, I spoke to um, the lead Democratic co-sponsor, Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, who's a good friend, um, who's been, you know, was watching the House like a box score you know, in the lead up to the vote. And um, uh, him and his lead Republican uh, co-sponsor, uh, Senator Rounds, um, who I think is from South Dakota, maybe North Dakota. It's one of the Dakotas um, and a great guy and, and a great guy. Um, uh, immediately sent a letter to Senator uh, McConnell saying, you know, you know, we just saw this amazing vote take place in the House. We have similar bipartisan support in the Senate. At that point, they had about 30 or 40 co-sponsors. Uh, as I said, it's now up to 61. So there, it's clear that the, the House vote has kind of turbocharged um, the effort in the Senate because clearly this, you know, coalition that organized around the House just immediately pivoted to the Senate, um, you know, within minutes after the the vote was tallied, and um, and and you know, hopefully again that external pressure is going to really um, punch through, and and you know, we're going to be uh, successful. I, I have to say, I I don't want to you know act like I'm an expert in terms of just the decision making that takes place in the Senate. There have been some cases of strong bipartisan bills. Uh, even in this Congress, that have actually broken through. You know, the, there were some veterans bills that, you know, the similar votes in the House with strong external support from veterans organizations have been successful in terms of getting a vote. And um, and I know, you know, Senator Schumer um, supports repeal uh, on the on the Democratic side, and um, you know that helps. You know, to have a leader of one side of the aisle. Um, and and again, when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. For some Democrats, this has been kind of a, a almost an emotional challenge, you know, to to sort of go in and, and surgically remove a part of the bill. So, I, you know, I think Schumer's support is um, significant, and um, and hopefully, you know, your listeners can help, um, you know, by getting on the phone and calling Senate offices and just really kind of, you know, making sure that. Um, you know, the, the strongest message is given from the grassroots out there that um, it's time to, to remove this, as I said, this overhang from um, the health care of millions of Americans. I, I think it's a fair bet, Congressman, that one or two of our employers have uh, have already made their views known to to Congress on, on, the, on this issue. Uh, so we do appreciate that. Yeah, uh, but this is the yeah. right time to make it. That, yeah, that, that yeah, is true. It, yeah uh, it's, uh, you just don't stop. <laughs> 
assuming that it's a very it's a very competitive it's a very competitive environment. So you know, persistence is necessary. So, well, assuming that the tax is repealed, what in your view is is the next big healthcare issue, or what are the next big healthcare issues in Congress that employers should be thinking about? So I I think another sort of interesting coalition that's sort of emerging uh, out there. that sort of defies, you know, conventional wisdom is really around the rising costs of pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, the uh, the payer community, which obviously includes employers and insurers, um, you know, I think are as fed up as patients about seeing the, the rising costs of prescription drugs that are way, you know, out of sync with the rest of the world. And you know, I was in the UK not too long ago on a Codel with Speaker Pelosi. And again, you know, we were there for Brexit and a lot of other issues that were there. But, you know, the question of, you know, how insulin costs in in the UK are a fraction of what people pay in the US, you know, which is replicated in other healthcare systems that aren't necessarily like the National Health Service. I mean, it's just, it has really reached, um, you know, in my opinion, a tipping point in terms of the fact that the Trump administration is talking about, you know, using the international price index as a measurement to, you know, really start to crack down in terms of rising prescription drug costs. Um, you know, in terms of healthcare premiums, I mean, that is, uh, it, you know, everything I've read shows that that is really one of the big, you know, drivers that are out there right now in terms of the rate setting. Connecticut's about to go through its you know, um, insurance department rate setting for next year's uh, health plans. And, and I think you're going to see the same thing again. So I, I actually think prescription drug costs, surprise billing, you know, yeah. which is, again, a, another one of these really bipartisan um, hotspots that are out there that really don't require us to get into the, into, you know, ideological food fight of, you know, repeal or replace, you know, Medicare for all, you know, all that uh, stuff, which I think is really a 2020 election issue at this point. Um, you know, if we can focus on and some progress on prescription drugs and surprise billing, in my opinion, that would be a good 116th Congress, as well as repealing the Cadillac tax. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly our clients would, would view that as an accomplishment. Congressman, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, we end each episode of The Bar with a segment that we call Last Call. Uh, so in recognition of your service to the state of Connecticut, we'd like to get your views on some lesser-known aspects of, of Connecticut's second district. So, Congressman Courtney, where is the submarine capital of the world located? So if you look at the map of Connecticut in the lower right corner um, in Groton, which is near um, Stonington, Connecticut, Mystic. Remember Mystic Pizza with Julia Roberts? Um, you know, it's right down the road from there. And um, Again, it's the home of the oldest submarine base in America, uh, the uh, submarine base in New London, which is actually in Groton. It's a very long story about why that moniker is the well, way it which is. Actually, but, uh, which actually I can give you some trivia here. It got a call out in the movie Goldfinger more than 50 <laughs> years ago. Uh, I guess the uh, submarine base in New London got, got called out there. So, Kerry, well, you're... you're- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, it just—it has a really great history of, um, you know, submarine service, and I, you know, would recommend people. There's a submarine museum that actually has the Nautilus, which was the first nuclear-powered submarine that was built in in Groton, Connecticut, by the infamous—I shouldn't say infamous—the the famous. Um, uh, Hyman Rickover, you know, who is this incredible yeah, genius. Yep. Yes, that's right. And uh, so the, anyway, there's 10,000 sailors that are still there every day. There's about 15 uh, attack subs that are tied up. Uh, down the, the coastline is Electric Boat Shipyard, which actually builds 
the Virginia uh, class attack subs. Um, their workforce is now 17,000, uh, two-thirds in Connecticut, one-third up in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And uh, they're about to embark on a new class of submarines, the Columbia class, um, which is just an, a staggering um, construction project. There's no margin for error when you build submarines. Uh, you know, you're operating in an environment that does not sustain human life. So I'm chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee and the House Armed Services Committee. We checked with a House historian the last time anyone from Connecticut and the House chaired a Navy committee or subcommittee was 1873. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah. Every, so, every 200 years like clockwork. <laughs> that's right. So people are very excited about that. And it's um, it's frankly a great part of the job because it's, um, you know, they're great people and they're doing something that, you know, obviously affects the, the local economy in a huge way and is important to the country. Yeah, and we appreciate their service. Yeah. So, uh, Congressman Courtney, we have just a couple more fun facts about Eastern Connecticut. So, um, in Eastern Connecticut, when you have a, a sandwich on two large slices of bread, is that a grinder or a hoagie? That is a grinder. That, and, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes, for sure. I mean, you go up to Bo- if you go up to Boston, it's a sub, you know, but you know that's <laughs> which we should call them, but. <laughs> If you're talking to Congressman Engel, you can tell him it's a wedge. So okay. That's what they call it. Wrong. <laughs> Love um, it. And and when you and when you go to one of the um, fun, you know, many local fairs in southeastern yep. Connecticut, would you rather watch the ox pool or the tractor pool? You know, the the ox pool is. Uh... You know, the, the, these animals are just, like, unbelievable. So, I mean, and it's probably more carbon neutral. So I'll go with Oxbow. <laughs> Congre- Congressman, the big question, no equivocations here. When it comes to college basketball, UConn or Duke? I, I bleed Husky Blue all the way. Good friend of Jim Calhoun's and, uh, and Tino Oriema. You know, they're, they're the, you know, we, we worship. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. Congressman Courtney, on behalf of Aon, Carrie and I would like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us at the Bar on Healthcare. Uh, thanks also to your, your great staff for working with us on, on all these issues. Uh, and and you, are welcome, you are welcome back at the Bar anytime. <laughs> great. Well, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I'd love to circle back with you guys if, uh, you know, knock on wood, we have a bill signing to, to get this uh, effort uh, done once and for all. And I want to thank Ann and all of your clients and folks who, you know, were really part of that 660 some odd groups that really, um, you know, was a good news story about our democracy. Yeah. Well, Congressman, thank you again. We really appreciate it. And that's our report for today. Uh, Wishing all of you a very happy Labor Day weekend on behalf of Ann and Congressman Courtney. I'm J.D. Pirro. And I'm Carrie Willis. Thanking you for your time this time. And until next time, the bar is closed.